This morning our speaker preached um, why suffering comes, a message that every believer needs to hear. And uh, it's in our archive, and you may want to get a copy of that. Uh, the, in the vestibule, there's forms that you can order all the, the messages. But it's one of those you will want to hear for yourself again and to pass along to others to help because that's something that's common uh, to all of us. I'd also like for you to, to listen to the interview that I had with Brother Miller last night after church. Um, he talks about his situation and how the Lord has blessed and helped him uh, over the years. And just some wonderful things for any believer uh, that, that the Lord would help you with. Let's ask the Lord once again to, to bless him as he comes. Now, Lord, we thank you so much for this opportunity. It's always a privilege to hear your word. And may we remind ourselves that we will stand and give an account in the great day for this very hour. And may we be judicious with our attention. May we purpose to listen and to open our hearts and minds and to cooperate with your spirit. And I pray that you'd bless each one and help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you turn, please, to the Old Testament book? Of Hosea chapter 2. Hosea chapter 2 beginning at verse 1. I want to talk to you tonight about God's restraining grace. All of us are familiar with redeeming grace. We have been saved by grace. We are familiar with benevolence grace, doesn't it seem to you that the Lord is always doing something good for us, always blessing us? This is benevolent grace. But in the sermon tonight, I want to help you to see the grace of God manifested in the way that he sometimes hedges up our way with thorns and makes a wall so that we cannot find our path and sin against him. Would you agree with this statement? When you and I are at our very best, we're still bad enough. Does that make any sense? When you and I are at our very best, we're still bad enough. But the truth is, we are not nearly as bad as we would be if God were to take away all of the restraint and turn us loose on our own. And that's what I want to talk to you about tonight, God's restraining grace. Let's begin our reading at... Chapter 2, verse 1. Say ye unto your brethren, Am I, and to your sister, Ruhamah, plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, neither am I her husband. Let her therefore put away her whoredom out of her sight and her adulteries from between her breasts lest I strip her naked and set her as in the day that she was born and make her like a wilderness and set her like a dry land and slay her with thirst. 
And I will not have mercy upon her children, for they be the children of whoredoms. For their mother hath played the harlot. She that conceived them hath done shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers that give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, mine oil and my drink. Therefore, behold, I will hedge up her way with thorns and make a wall that she shall not find her paths. And she shall follow after her lovers, but she shall not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then shall she say, I will go and return unto my first husband. For then was it better with me than now. I have divided the passage under three headings in verses 1 through 5. I want you to see the sin of Gomer. The sin of Gomer. Now before I go further, I just want to tell you that when I get home to heaven, I intend to inquire, what did parents have on their minds when they named a new baby girl Gomer? That just bugs the tar out of me. Why on earth would they have done that? But nevertheless, they did. And in this text, we will see the sin of Gomer. In verse 6, I want you to see the sovereign grace. Now, you are aware that this phrase, sovereign grace, is a redundancy. All grace, by its nature, is sovereignly dispensed. Otherwise, it ceases to be grace at all. But, since I'm doing the preaching... And I needed another S for my outline. It's going to be sovereign grace tonight. Can you give me some grace on that? And then in verse 7, I want you to see the saving goal of the text. Now, regarding the sin of Gomer, I want you to see three things. I want you to see her punishment announced. I want you to see her posterity affected, and I want you to see her persistent attitude. Now look at verse 2. Let her therefore put away her whoredom out of her sight and her adulteries from between her breasts. That is, let her go deep inside her innermost recesses And put away the thoughts that produce the lust, that produce the sins. If she does not, I announce these punishments for her. They are listed in verse 3. Here's the first one. He threatens her with degradation and disgrace. Listen to it. Lest I strip her naked. It was common in Hosea's day. If a man discovered that his wife had been unfaithful, 
he would strip her clothing from her, open the door of his house, and force her to walk out of the house, out into the street, exposed. All who saw her knew immediately, here is a woman unfit as a mother and unfaithful as a wife. And she would experience tremendous social and moral degradation and disgrace in the community. Now, obviously, I am not suggesting that we should revert to such a practice in our day. But neither do I believe that such immorality should be commonplace among the saints. Number two, he threatens her with destitution. He says, lest I strip her naked and set her as in the day that she was born. In Ezekiel's 16th chapter, he speaks of the birth of the nation of Israel. And he says this, When I first saw you, you were like a baby whose mother did not love it. She did not sever its navel cord. She did not wash its blood. She did not swaddle it at all. But in an unconscionable act, cast it from her person and walked away and left it alone out in the desert. And when I passed by, I saw you in your blood. And I said unto you, live. Yea, I said unto you, live. Well, I don't know about you, beloved, but that's an apt description of where God found me. Do you know of anything more destitute, more dependent than a newborn infant left to itself out in the desert? Gomer? You better repent, the Lord says, or I'll reduce you to a state of destitution. Number three, he threatens her with desolation. He says, I'll make her like a wilderness and set her like a dry land. That meant economic recession and depression. And number four, he threatens her with death itself. He says, I will slay her with thirst. Now, I confess to you that I don't know all that much about the sin unto death. I certainly don't know as much as some of my preacher friends seem to know on that subject. However, I do believe that the Bible is unequivocally clear. It is possible for a person to die a premature death and go to an early grave when they persist unrepentant in their sins against God. Do you see it? Do you see her punishment announced in the text? Now put that aside and I want you to consider her posterity affected. Look at verse 4. And I will not have mercy upon her children, for they be the children of whoredoms. For their mother hath played the harlot. 
She that conceived them hath done shamefully. Are you aware God sometimes punishes children because of the sins of the parents? If he doesn't do it directly, often he does it indirectly for generations in Israel. The parents had been immoral and materialistic. Their children had grown up to do What children most often do, they followed in the steps of their parents. They adopted this materialistic and immoral lifestyle for themselves. And walking in the footsteps of their parents, they incurred the wrath of God upon their lifestyle. And isn't this the tragedy about sin? It not only affects the individual that commits it. So often, our sin affects those we love the most and would hate the worst to be affected by our sin. Her posterity is affected. But now I want you to see the third item. I want you to consider her persistent attitude towards sin. Would you look at verse 5, the last half of the verse? For she said, I will go after my lovers that give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, mine oil and my drink. Wouldn't you have thought that when this mother came face to face with the reality that her children are being negatively impacted by her sin, that she would have plowed up her fallow ground, that she would have rent her heart into two pieces, that she would have sought the Lord in tears. Not so. Wouldn't you have thought that when this woman came face to face with the judgment of God upon her life, that she would have repented, but not so. She is persistent in her attitude. Listen to her. I will go after my lovers. To put it in today's vernacular, I don't care what you say. I don't care what you think. Sit down and shut up and butt out. It's my life. I'll do as I please. A persistent attitude towards sin. Now, have any of you in this room ever experienced a persistent attitude towards sin? Have you? Now, if you're not going to tell the truth, I will just keep on preaching. I can go on and on and on. I tell you, beloved, there have been times in my Christian experience, even as a Baptist preacher, when I have grown weary and exasperated with my own heart and mind. There have been times when it seemed there was a compelling compulsion, a strong inclination, a mighty bent toward sinning, even in the face of God's judgment, even being cognizant of the far-reaching impact of sin. Where would Gomer have been? Better, where would you and I be tonight 
were it not for God's restraining grace. Are y'all getting any of this yet? I'm just about to go back and start all over. (laughs) Now, put that aside. I'm ready to get to the good stuff now. Are y'all ready to get to the good part? Do you know why I'm just now getting to verse 6 and the sovereign grace? It's because you can't get to verse 6 except through verses 1 through 5. That's the problem with modern day preaching. Folks just want the good stuff. They just want to be affirmed and approved. But now that we have seen the sin of Gomer, perhaps we can have a better appreciation for God's grace. Now I want to do two things at verse 6. One, I want to give you an explanation of the text. And then I want to make an exhortation based upon the text. What does our Lord mean when he says, Therefore, behold, I will hedge up her way with thorns. The Israelites recognized the analogy. It was common among the shepherds, the farmers, to plant a row of hedges in such a way that when they matured, They would be so thickly matted that they could be used as a fence, as a corral to keep the cattle or the sheep in at night. But now, perhaps some of you, like myself, grew up out in the country. And you know enough about livestock to know that some cattle won't ever be kept in by a fence of hedges and thorns. Periodically, as I was growing up, we would get the cattle into the lot around the barn. It seemed every time we did that, there'd be at least one cow in the bunch. No sooner would you get her into the lot and close the gate till she would begin to walk around the fence looking for a place to get out. And if she couldn't find a suitable place, ere long, she would get up ahead of steam and just tear through the best fence you could build. It would leave her bleeding and bellowing in pain. But when you had retrieved her, it wouldn't be long till she'd be trying to get out again. So the Lord says, I'm going to hedge up your way with thorns, but... If that's not enough, I am going to build a wall. And the analogy here is to an old-fashioned rock fence or rock wall. Over in Cleburne County, Arkansas, where Eric and I live, there are still some old-fashioned rock fences standing out in the countryside. Years ago, when the farmers were breaking new ground, they would take the larger rocks out of the field and literally build a rock wall or fence around the field. Have you ever seen one of those? Now, it occurs to me that a rock fence can serve at least two functions. One, it can serve as a wall of protection or 
It can serve as a wall of prevention. Now, what's the Lord saying to Gomer? He's saying, Gomer, you are persistent in your attitude. You have said, I will go after my lovers, but I have got news for you. I can be more persistent than you. I'm going to hedge up your way with thorns. But if that's not enough, I'm going to build a rock wall across your path. And in your rebellion and your disobedience, you are going to discover that you are beating your head against a rock wall. Now, I'm at a very crucial juncture in the sermon. And I need to ask a theological question. Is that permissible here? Well, after all, this is the church. And the church is the pillar and the ground of truth. Now, here's the question. First, pull yourself up to your best height. Some of you are a little more comfortable than you ought to be in church. (laughs) Get your chin up and your shoulders back and listen carefully to the question now it'll be better for you in the judgment if the lord says you never did get the answer right than for him to say you didn't even know what the question was so get the question right here it is did you ever notice that sometimes When the temptation to sin is strong, that the opportunity to sin was not present. Have you ever noticed that? Now, conversely, have you ever noticed that sometimes when the opportunity to sin is present, that the temptation to sin is not present. Have you ever noticed? Up and down like this if you have. Back and forth like this if you've never in the world noticed that. Round like this if you're confused. Why is this? Is is this just the common course of nature? No, I tell you, beloved, that's God in marvelous grace hedging up our way with thorns making a wall, protecting us, preventing us from sinning against Him. I was saved when I was 16 years old. I lived alone from January 1963 until June of that year. Now, don't feel sorry for me. I had a comfortable place to live. wasn't living under the bridge or eating out of the trash can. I was well provided for. But I lived alone. And I made great progress in sanctification. I was serious and sober-minded about serving the Lord. I taught a Bible class at our church. I tithed. I sought aggressively to witness the gospel to my friends. But if I were to tell you the whole story, I'd have to tell you there were some times when the temptation to sin was strong. And yet so often when the temptation was strong, the opportunity was not present. 
And on other occasions, when I happened to be in a situation where the opportunity was present, do you know what the Lord did? He either did not allow me to be tempted at all, or he did, with the temptation, also make a way to escape that I might be able to bear it. This is the grace of God. This is restraining grace. This is grace without which you and I could not live the Christian life. Now, I believe this to be a fair and honest explanation of the text. Based upon that now, I want to make a twofold exhortation negatively. This text eliminates boasting in the flesh. Did you ever hear some of these folk testify during a revival service? I mean, you've invited them to give a three-minute testimony. And being aware of Murphy's Law, you explained it to them further. And you tell them, now we know that you've been to the Holy Land. And you've got that set of slides, and that's wonderful, and we're anxious to see them, but not tonight. We want you just to get up and tell us about the grace of God in your life. Just brag on Jesus. And 15 minutes later, they're still talking, telling where all they've been and what all they've done. And after a while, I'm sitting out there thinking to myself, Behold, one greater than Moses is among us. (laughs) Behold, one greater than Solomon. And as he talks on, I'm beginning to wonder, How will the kingdom survive after his demise? Did you ever hear any testimonies like that? A brother came to pastor in our association at home. He had had the wonderful privilege of obtaining formal academic training for the ministry. I don't know why, but he thought he was God's gift of wisdom to the poor, ignorant saints in the Little Red River Association. I remember the first uh, meeting he attended. We did not have an opportunity to formally, properly introduce him before he had shared his great wisdom. And every time we met thereafter, he shared his great wisdom. And he would quote... Robert's Rules of Order. I mean, it got to where we couldn't vote to say we love the Lord and hate the devil without him uh, wanting to correct us or to quote Robert's Rules of Order. After a while, here is a brother who knows more about Robert's rules of order than he does about the spirit of the New Testament church. Some of the brethren came to me and they said, David, by virtue of your position as our leader, 
It is incumbent upon you to either speak to this brother privately or we're going to speak to him publicly. And I picked up on their drift. And to tell you the truth, I was like the monkey that kissed the skunk myself. Did you hear about him? The monkey that kissed the skunk? Well, here's what he said. He said, I have not had all that I want, but I've had all I can stand. (laughs) And that's the way I was. I hadn't had all the wisdom I wanted, but I'd had about all I could stand from this one brother. And a few days later, he was in my study sharing his great wisdom. He pointed out our mistakes in the past, showed me how our projections for the future were misguided. After a while, I interrupted him. I said, Brother, can you stop for just a moment? I'd like to ask you a question. At what point in time was it... When God made you the depository of all wisdom, when did that happen? And furthermore, I want to say to you, in the words of Job to his three friends, in chapter 12, verse 2 of his book, no doubt, but that you are the people, and when you die, wisdom will die with you. Do you ever know any folks like that? Now, some of you are sitting out there trying to look really pious. But I've got the gift of discernment. I see right through that. You know exactly what I'm talking about. I learned years ago that because I have a physical handicap, and I don't know why it's referred to as a handicap. It's not handy and it's not a cap. But because I have one, Folks were a lot more interested in hearing how I have lived with a crippling and killing muscle disorder. And I learned years ago that if I would announce early in the week that on Friday evening I was going to give my personal testimony and I'm going to tell you how I've dealt with this uh, terrible Muscle disease, perineal muscular atrophy, charcoal marie tooth type. And I dramatized that. And I say, now, if you got to miss any night, don't miss Friday night. Invite your neighbors. Bring all of your friends. I'm going to give my testimony Friday night right here in your church. Well, we'd have the biggest crowd on Friday evening of any other night of the meeting. didn't matter that I'd been preaching about the grace of God or the atonement of Jesus. Every time I ever did that, one or more people would approach me like this. Oh, Brother Miller, how do you do it? You just go right on. Nothing seems to bother you. You have such fulfillment. Such joy and peace in your life. 
Brother Billy, you act just like a... Well, preacher, you know what I'm trying to say. You act just like a normal person. How do you do that? Now, look, I've been tempted. I've been tempted. And I've been tempted when the opportunity was present. I've been tempted to say, sit down there, brother, and I'm going to tell you how I've done it. Now, if you'd read your Bible as much as I read mine, and if you would give as much as I give, and if you spend half as much time as I do out there in the heat of the day, bearing the burden of the Lord, sold out like I am, well, sir, you would have the same joy and fulfillment that I have. I've been tempted to say that, but I never have said it. Now, you might have thought that I just said it, but I didn't say it. I just told you what I'd been tempted to say. I've never said that, and I'm glad I haven't. You know why? Because I know my own heart too well. I know that there have been times when I have read 16 chapters in the Bible. Did you know if you read 16 chapters every day that you could read the entire Bible through every three months and have Sundays off? But I've read 16 chapters in the Bible and prayed. And when I had finished, I was still bent out of shape filled with frustration and hostility. And I've wrapped the towel together and thrown it in. And I've said it out loud. My secretary, my wife have heard it. I've said, I don't care. I just don't care. The last thing under the heavens that I want to have to endure today is to have one more Baptist come to my study for counseling. I am up to my ears with that. Give me a break. Did you know Baptist people will come to see some church staff person and ask such a silly, stupid question as this? Do you think I ought to buy whole milk or 2%? Get a lie. Women will come see the pastor and want advice about their sex life. You know what I tell them? Go see your great-grandma. She's been there and done that. Leave the preacher alone. And the last thing I want to have to do today is visit with some piddling committee. I get more done in the morning while I'm having my coffee. And I can get done in a half a day with seven grown men fussing about whether we're going to put hard candy and nuts in the Thanksgiving basket. Don't bother me with that. And furthermore, now I hope what I'm doing here doesn't disillusion you with a Baptist preacher. But I have said I don't care where I'm supposed to preach tonight either. I'm tired of folks telling me how inspiring I am. 
bless the Lord, if they don't ever get inspired again till I inspire them, they're apt to die uninspired. And I throw the towel in. And I head down the road of discouragement and disobedience. But glory, glory. I don't get very far till I discover there's a hedge of thorns across my path. Now, there have been some times when I have been recalcitrant and obstinate and I'd lower my shoulder, stiffen my neck, and I'd go right on down the road in disobedience. But glory, glory, I don't get much further till I discover there's a rock wall across my path. Now, you beat your head against a wall for a while. And you're apt to look up and say, Lord, are you trying to tell me something? Now, the Lord never has spoken to me audibly, has he you? Don't answer that. (laughs) But I've had these impressions. David, you give up too easily. I've got too much invested in you to let you go without a fight. Now, what you need to do, son, is to get up and turn around and come on back home to the Father's house. And I get up and turn around. I repent. And I come back home to the Father's house. Oh, beloved, listen, if you and I have reached any measure of success, if we have reached any level of sanctification, our spiritual maturity, our victory. We ought to take the crown off our head and lay it at the feet of Jesus. He not only redeemed us by grace, He does actively restrain us. It eliminates boasting. Positively, this text excites us to brag in the Spirit to brag on Jesus, to sing songs like this. Not have I gotten, but what I received. Grace hath bestowed it, since I have believed. Boasting excluded, pride I abase. I'm only a sinner saved by grace. Oh, beloved, the more you know about the grace of God, the more it will eliminate boasting. And the more it will excite you to brag on Jesus. Now let me finish by saying something about the saving goal of the text. Listen to it. She shall follow after her lovers, but she shall not overtake them. She shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then shall she say, I will go and return to my first husband For then was it better with me than now. When Gomer left her husband and her three children, when she went out into the dark night of sin, God was a witness to her debauchery. God smelled the stench of her sin. But in wrath... God remembered mercy. And even the punishment was designed to bring her back home to her family. 
And did you hear what she said? Things will be better with me when I get back home. Things are never so bad and bent out of shape as when you leave the father and the family and the fellowship. But things will never be so well and warm and wonderful as when you come back home to the father's house. He'll see you coming a great way off. He'll run to meet you. He'll put his arms around you. He'll say to the family, bring forth the best robe and put it on him. Put shoes on his feet. Put a ring on his finger. Kill the fatted calf. We're going to have a celebration. This, my child, has come home. I've wandered far away from God. Now, I'm coming home. The paths of sin, too long I've trod. Lord, I'm coming home. Oh, friend, do you need to come home tonight? Do you need to get up and turn around and come on back home? That's our invitation. That's our appeal to your heart. Let's pray. Our Father, write these things indelibly upon our hearts and before our eyes. Make us ever aware of your goodness and grace. For Jesus' sake, amen.